This is an ABC podcast. 774 ABC Melbourne and ABC Victoria. Your emergency services network. Bushfire information. John Fane with you. In the Southbank studios, we have 11 fires under observation across Victoria. This was the situation on Friday the 6th of February 2009. Terry Ryan is on duty at the Weather Bureau. We think it was the hottest day ever for Victoria. 47.9 at, at Avalon. It was just heat that you'd, you know, you could work here your whole lifetime, not see anything like it. 173 people died that day, which became known as Black Saturday. Peter Mitchell is at the fire station in King Lake. Peter, good evening. Oh, good day, John. How are you? What can you tell us? Uh, the whole of King Lake is ablaze, mate. What can you actually see now? Flame everywhere. Trees exploding, gas tanks exploding, buildings on fire. Uh, it's very, very, very serious. 2,000 homes were destroyed across a range of different places, including my hometown of Churchill down in Latrobe Valley. So I had a personal connection to what was going on as well at the time. My mum and dad were living there and my brothers were living in the valley and had friends there that were directly impacted by the fires. This is Scott Hamilton, a researcher at the University of Melbourne, who at the time of the Black Saturday bushfires worked for the Victorian government in climate change research. So there was definitely this this feeling at the time, you can't put any one weather event down to climate change and therefore this may or may not be climate change. A study of news coverage at the time found only 5% of articles about Black Saturday mentioned climate change. And of those, nearly a quarter featured people doubting that climate was the main cause. It's kind of interesting that there was so little discussion about the role climate change had played, given that Australia was in the midst of a furious debate over how best to cut emissions. It was so furious it led four of Australia's most powerful people to lose their job a total of six times and froze the climate debate for more than a decade. I'm Matt Bevan and this is Australia If You're Listening a podcast about why Australia's found it so hard to tackle climate change and what that means for the future. As the rest of the world found a way to move forward, Australia was gripped by a climate war at the top of our political system for a decade. With every attempt to tackle climate change, the debate became more polluted until solutions embraced around the world were struck off the table entirely. The warring obliterated the climate debate here. And for a while it made federal politics really very strange. This episode, the story of the most bitter and destructive Australian political debate in living memory and how we may now be almost getting past it. So, um, we've never done this before, but, well, there's some stuff from other episodes we need you to remember. So, um... Previously on Australia, if you're listening. Australian scientists found out about climate change in the 1970s. The climate will change. In the 1980s, politicians figured it out. 
And what was the response like in Cabinet? Negative. <laughs> in 1990, a policy was adopted that we would cut greenhouse gas emissions, but... The decision is conditional. We'd only do it if it didn't cost us anything and other countries acted first. I knew that was the only way we'd get it through. By the early 2000s, mining companies were spreading misinformation about carbon emissions and climate change. They'd be dead without carbon. And some media commentators were too. This is, this is a lot of hoo-ha. The Australian public started getting more confused. Can you tell me what the greenhouse effect is? No. <laughs> and scepticism of the science of climate change started spreading inside the coalition government. I am sceptical about uh, a lot of the uh, more gloomy predictions. In the 2007 election, Kevin Rudd won, promising action. But the climate change debate had turned into a culture war. Global warming alarmist case has been so promoted in Australia, it is time that an alternative point of view was put. Poisoning any attempt at policy debate. Alan, the, the big difference between you and me is that on this is that you believe climate change is a hoax. I do. You believe people should... We I don't do. have to do anything about it. Absolutely got me in one. And your view is... OK. Caught up? Here we go. 55 runs for the ninth wicket as this one... Well, up hit on the pad. McDonald's into the test match. Trapped in front. He can't believe it. Well, has it ended the test match? On the 7th of January 2009, one of the most dramatic final days of test cricket ever seen at the Sydney Cricket Ground was playing out. I was sitting in the stands in 34-degree heat, watching the South African captain, Graeme Smith, do something extraordinary. We'll wait and see. All the members are up and they're looking back to see if Graeme Smith's coming out. And he is. Graeme Smith's coming out to bat. Smith had broken his hand earlier in the match, but to try and drag his team to a draw, he decided to come out to bat anyway. There are 50 balls remaining in the test. He planned to bat one-handed for eight overs to save the game. Well, it's great theatre here and high drama. At the same time, a few kilometres away, there was another drama playing out. I remember that heroism. That's why South Africa sticks in my mind from that summer. Economics professor Ross Garno was watching the cricket with Prime Minister Kevin Rudd at Kirribilli House on the shore of Sydney Harbour. What has Graham Smith got? We were just talking through the issues. In fact, cricket's a good background for a lot of things. By this stage, Ross Garno had spent nearly two years thinking and writing about how Australia should respond to climate change. He'd been commissioned by the state and territory governments and Kevin Rudd to write a report on what should be done. That that was the day that we were talking about uh, conditional and unconditional targets. Cricket on, they were discussing how much Australia should cut its greenhouse gas emissions by. My actual recommendation had been that emissions should be reduced by 5% by 2020 if the rest of the world did absolutely nothing at all. But if the rest of the world was taking action... And we should calibrate what we did to that and we should be uh, prepared to uh, reduce emissions by up to 25%. Kevin Rudd's government had announced a smaller target than that. But after their conversation watching the cricket, Rudd came around to Garno's point of view. My discussions with Kevin were always very cordial and uh, cerebral and he got the point. And, and acted on it. Well, maybe not quite as dramatic as what was happening at the SCG. The ball in the right spot for a wicket. He goes in and bowls to Smith, and Smith is bowled! He's bowling! The game's over! 
So there were two victories that day, one at the SCG, one at Kirribilli House. The emissions reductions target was just the end point of the recommendations from Gano. His report, the Gano Climate Change Review, made two key suggestions. One of them actually paid off. We'll get to that a bit later. But the other one turned into a political nightmare. This recommendation was an attempt to fix what Gano saw as a market failure, that there was no cost for emitting carbon into the atmosphere despite... The fact that anyone who emitted carbon was doing damage to others. He suggested a scheme be set up to make polluters pay. The idea was a restriction on the total amount of carbon emissions would be legislated year by year into the future that uh, anyone wanting to uh, emit carbon would have to buy a permit. So you pay the government for a permit to emit carbon. But then, if you end up not needing that permit, you sell it to someone else and maybe make a profit. That's an emissions trading scheme, an ETS. It's an incentive to reduce your carbon emissions. So industries that, by design, emit a lot of carbon, like mining or energy, were not fans. They'd been arguing against anything that looked even remotely like an ETS since the 90s. The recommendations from Gano were bundled up together into a policy put forward by the Rudd government. It was called the Carbon Pollution Reduction Scheme. This is Greg Combay, who was assisting the climate change minister, Penny Wong, to design the scheme. Because essentially the impact of greenhouse gas emissions goes through to every power point in the country, every commodity in one form or another, every service that's provided, it really is a difficult task. Designing the scheme was difficult but not nearly as difficult as it would be to pass through the parliament. It is not going to do anything for the environment. It is a scheme that will cost jobs and put pressure on our economy. Years of lobbying from the mining industry meant there was more opposition to action on climate change than ever. It is a bill built on flawed science, fueled by unsustainable hysteria. The makeup of the Senate at the time meant Kevin Rudd needed seven votes from outside his own party to pass legislation. They needed to either get the Coalition to vote with them or the Greens. The problem was the Coalition thought the target was too big and the Greens thought it was too small. An attempt to pass the legislation with the help of the Greens failed. But then the opposition leader Malcolm Turnbull came to the table with his suggestion for a gentler ETS. To Malcolm Turnbull's credit, he grasped that nettle. Uh, He recognised that uh, for the benefit of the Australian community and in the national interest, it would be best to have a comprehensive response to the challenge of climate change. And that is why he engaged in those negotiations. And they were constructive. He was assisted at that time by Ian McFarlane, with whom I dealt quite a lot over that discussion. The negotiation was a very good-spirited negotiation, and we both lost a bit of skin from our own people. Here's Ian McFarlane. And I know there were times when I went back to the shadow cabinet and they just said no. I know that there were times when Penny Wong went back to the then Prime Minister, Kevin Rudd, and he just said there's no way we're going to agree with that. And there was, for about a week, the prospect of, of actually resolving this and putting it aside in terms of the politics and just moving forward. We did our best. (laughs) I know personally I threw everything I had at it. Malcolm Turnbull threw everything he had at it too. He staked his leadership on getting a deal. I will not lead a party 
that is not as committed to effective action on climate change as I am. But that turned out to be a problem. A large group of Liberal Party members decided they would call his bluff. Does that mean a new leader, Senator? Well, whatever is required to have a better policy. Opponents of the policy, like National Senate leader Barnaby Joyce, started referring to the ETS as a tax. My, my belief is anything that we can do to delay, defer, um, put off, kill this ETS, this massive new tax, is a tactic that you know I'd have to consider. He used the word tax as often as humanly possible. A tax on walking did not develop the wheel and a tax on horses did not develop the motor car. So why is a tax on carbon emissions going to do anything but develop tax evaders? Hang on. Now, guys, just settle down. Just settle down. In December 2009, Turnbull took the policy to a joint Liberal and National Party room meeting. It didn't go well. As the meeting broke up, it was clear something extraordinary had gone down. I've never seen such a meeting before. History will tell you that, yes, that it did end pretty disastrously for Malcolm Turnbull. He lost his leadership of the Liberal Party over it. We went then to the leadership of Tony Abbott and the politics flame was turned up as far as it could possibly go from both sides, not just from our side, but from both sides. Tony Abbott had become opposition leader. As for what his victory meant, well, it couldn't have been more obvious. It was quite clear that he'd become leader of the opposition on the back of opposition to action on climate change, so uh, that was a very important moment historically. But it was clear that Tony Abbott's uh, defeat of Malcolm Turnbull was the end of uh, a bipartisan approach to climate change. Mr. Abbott, you were quoted a month or so ago as saying that climate change is crap. Do you still believe that? Do you still believe that? Um, Look, uh, it was was a bit of hyperbole. Uh, It's not my considered position. To Tony Abbott, the way forward was clear. Destroy the ETS by calling it a tax. This is a $120 billion tax on the Australian public, and that is just for starters. It was pretty easy to grasp how politically lethal that kind of political opportunism could be. I mean, and let's, we shouldn't lose sight of that. It's actually a disgrace. I think it's fair to say Greg Combe doesn't have fond memories of this period. That opportunistic politics really got underway quickly and, and overwhelmed clearly Malcolm Turnbull's support in the Liberal Party first up, but ultimately also overwhelmed Labor's efforts to you know, secure an effective policy outcome to tackle greenhouse gas emissions. Opposition from the Greens and the Coalition meant that the Labor government was unable to pass any form of their emissions trading scheme through the Parliament. Four months later, an exhausted Rudd put it on the shelf. The implementation of a carbon pollution reduction scheme in Australia will be delayed. Ross Garneau watched on. I must say I was a little bit surprised and... Uh, thought that also that it was a mistake because I thought that the government would have won an election uh, on the issue at the time. This decision put a target on Kevin Rudd's back. Why has he run away from what he said was the greatest moral challenge of our time? And within months, he suffered the same fate as Malcolm Turnbull. The Prime Minister. Thank you very much, uh, Mr Speaker. I accept that the government has lost track... We will get 
back on track. I have taken control for precisely that purpose. Everything so far in this story happened within 18 months of the Black Saturday bushfires. And yet in the midst of all of this, the link between the worst bushfire disaster in Australian history and climate change was rarely discussed by anyone but the Greens. A record heat wave was bad enough. Now smoke is also plaguing Moscow. When Julia Gillard took over from Kevin Rudd as Prime Minister, there was a significant heat wave underway in the Northern Hemisphere. Fires sparked by unprecedented dry and hot weather. At least 26 forest fires are burning near Moscow. An unprecedented heat wave. You see how hot it is this year. In some spots it's plus 40, plus 50 degrees. It started with with the Russian heat wave for me. This is Dr. Freddie Otto. I'm a climate scientist and my main research is on extreme weather events and answering the question whether and to what extent man-made climate change alters the likelihood and intensity of individual extreme events. In 2010, she was frustrated by the way that scientists in her field spoke about the relationship between climate change and individual weather events. For me, it was very frustrating that every time an extreme event happened, people would ask the question, what's the role of climate change? And climate scientists basically did not say anything or said something like, you can't attribute individual weather events to climate change, but yeah, it might be the sort of thing we might expect more of. It is particularly difficult to attribute you know, climate change to any one particular weather event. I think it's perhaps even a little bit dangerous to do that. Or they would say, well, obviously the climate is changing, so that will have an effect on the weather. And the latter is trivially true, but it doesn't tell you anything about what this effect is. She knew they were confident in the science, but they always came across as unsure. There were two papers published after the Russian heatwave in 2010. One was saying that climate change made the event five times more likely, and the other paper was saying that it was basically a natural event. And that was even more frustrating, because that sounded very contradictory for the public. So then that was even worse than not saying anything. Otto started developing a method of declaring how much blame you could pin on climate change for any one particular event. So there were only a handful of people in the world actually doing this at all. You might be familiar with the way meteorologists talk about how likely a weather event is to occur. They do it with terms like this. The Weather Bureau describes it as a one in a 100 year event. One in 100 year rain event. A one in 100 year event does not mean that it happens once in 100 years. It means that in every given year, there is a 1% chance of such an event to occur. So it's, a one, it's, it's more likely a 1% event rather than a... Uh, yes. Yeah. Okay. So you're describing the number of sides on a dice that you are rolling this year. Yes, It's, it's exactly. either a 100-sided a dice or a 10-sided dice, but you could still roll the same number twice in yes, consecutive exactly. years. That, that's exactly. And, and that, is, that is exactly the difficult thing in, in this whole attribution science is to find out how many sides does our dice have. So what Freddie Otto has done is develop a way, using computers, to determine the size of two dice in two different universes. 
One of the dice exists in the universe where humans never started burning fossil fuels and there is no climate change. The other dice exists in the universe where greenhouse gas emissions have raised the temperature one degree higher than they would have been otherwise. So is it maybe a one in ten year event? And then you would look for the same event and find out what, how likely is that to occur in the world without climate change and might find it in that world it's a one in 20 year event and so you can say that the likelihood of the event has doubled. Freddie Otto first applied this method to the Russian heatwave of 2010. My conclusion at the time was that climate change made the event at least three times more likely. This work on attribution began in a time when there was still public doubt about whether climate change was already affecting weather patterns. Back in Australia, the climate debate already strained... Prime Minister, no mention today or tonight, as a matter of fact, about the carbon tax... ...was about to become toxic. Five days before the 2010 federal election, Julia Gillard was being interviewed on 10 News. Throughout the campaign, there had been discussion of a potential carbon tax, but the government was hesitant. 10 News host Bill Woods put a question to Julia Gillard that would haunt her the rest of her career. So have you decided that's going to cost your votes? Is that why it's on the shelf? Uh, there will be no carbon tax under the government I lead. I actually had surgery, had to have some surgery in the midst of the election campaign in 2010 and I was laid up in bed in my apartment in Newcastle when that statement was made and I didn't know that that had happened. And it wasn't until we were, you know, in government that I realised that that commitment had been given. The election ended in a hung parliament. Greens MP Adam Bant demanded a carbon price in exchange for his support in a minority government. We want a price on carbon and we want it soon. Gillard agreed to charge emitters $23 for every tonne of carbon they released into the atmosphere from July 2012, which would become a full emissions trading scheme after three to five years. The money raised from the scheme would go into tax cuts for everyday Australians. Ross Garno was delighted. For two years, we had the world's best policies, recognised everywhere as the most economically efficient and environmentally efficient in the world. But the political discussion had been poisoned. Day two of the new carbon tax regime, and while it's still possible we'll have a substantive and thoughtful conversation about it, away from the stunts and slogans, it hasn't happened yet. Tony Abbott's Chief of Staff Peter Credlin explained years later that even though she and Tony Abbott knew it wasn't a carbon tax, they decided to call it that, over and over. They wanted to make it a fight about the hip pocket and not about the environment. Yes, well, we had to find ways, of course, of fighting Tony Abbott's attack and also to explain Julia Gillard's pre-election commitment concerning a carbon tax and of course that proved to be a pretty difficult exercise. It was extremely difficult. On the day the scheme was announced Gillard went on the ABC's 7.30 program. With this carbon tax, do you do concede it's a carbon tax, do you not? Oh, look, uh, I'm happy to use the word tax, Heather. I understand some uh, silly little collateral debate has uh, broken out today. I mean, how ridiculous. I asked Greg Combay if this exchange made things easier for Tony Abbott. Yes, I think, yeah. I think the answer to your question is obviously yes. The, uh, 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 the, uh, 
perception of a broken election commitment of obviously was very harmful politically. Even by her own omission, she lied, she lied to you. The message was effective. The Labor Party was spooked. Months before the next election arrived, Gillard was replaced by Kevin Rudd, who went on to lose to Tony Abbott. The carbon price was doomed. Abbott wasn't alone in prosecuting the case against the carbon price. The networks formed by mining companies to fight threats to their industry hammered it too, including lobby groups and pro-fossil fuel media commentators. Australian politics had become less about what you could do to tackle climate change and more about what you could not do. For one thing, tax had become a toxic word. Changing your mind about something was also forbidden, unless you wanted to be hammered with allegations of being a liar. At this point, three people had lost their jobs over climate change policy, and Kevin Rudd had arguably lost the same job twice. But a carbon price wasn't the only policy passed by the Gillard government on climate change. Remember when I said Ross Garneau recommended other stuff? Ideas that haven't been nearly as controversial as an ETS? The other big one was that Australia needed a way to stimulate new renewable energy technology and projects. We need a lot of innovation fast to deal with climate change. So, Out of the deal between Labor and the Greens on carbon pricing under the Gillard government, we got the Australian Renewable Energy Agency and the Clean Energy Finance Corporation. This is Alison Reeve, a former top energy advisor to the Australian government. Part of her job was explaining to other countries what those agencies did. One, known as ARENA, for funding renewable energy experiments, and one, known as the CEFC, for helping fund big renewable energy projects. I would get counterparts from other countries who would come up to me and go, how do I get that? How do I get what you've got? And I kind of had to say, well, yeah, you know, first, you know, you have a hung parliament and then you have this massive bargaining process. But if you can line all of those up, you can have what we've got. (laughs) What we've still got today. See, Tony Abbott tried to get rid of ARENA and the CEFC at the same time as the carbon price, but he was thwarted. In a sequence of events that kind of sounds uh, made up, Queensland mining billionaire Clive Palmer decided he and his Palmer United Party would protect them from the axe in exchange for a photo opportunity with former US Vice President Al Gore. I'd like to welcome our uh, distinguished guest, Nobel Laureate Al Gore, former Vice President of the United States of America, and my parliamentary leader, Clive Palmer. If Clive Palmer didn't want to get a photo with Al Gore, ARENA would probably not exist today. Palmer United Senators will vote against the abolition of the Clean Energy Finance Corporation. The fact that our renewable energy funding agencies are only there thanks to a mining magnate being a fan of a climate change campaigner should tell you all you need to know about how utterly bizarre this period in political history was. In 2015, Australia needed to update the international community on our progress on climate change at a conference in Paris. Tony Abbott had decided that Australia's headline promise to the conference would be a target for emissions cuts. We will achieve a 26 to 28% emissions reduction target uh, by 2030. When it was time for the conference itself... The voice delivering the news belonged to a man who prefers blue suits to red budgie smugglers. From Australia we come with confidence and optimism. Tony Abbott had lost his job to Malcolm Turnbull. We do not doubt the implications of the science 
or the scale of the challenge. But above all, we do not doubt the capacity of humanity to meet it. The emissions target approved by Abbott was touted as a win by Turnbull. Our 2030 target represents real economic effort and will halve our per capita emissions. After everything he'd seen go down over the previous seven years, Turnbull stressed in Paris that he would not be lowering Australia's emissions with taxes. We firmly believe that it is innovation and technology which will enable us both to drive stronger economic growth and a cleaner environment. By that stage, just about all of Europe, Japan, New Zealand and seven major Chinese cities had emissions trading schemes or carbon taxes in place. The world was moving ahead. Meanwhile, Australia had just scrapped their carbon pricing scheme and set this fairly unambitious target. But now, even not legislating on carbon emissions was starting to cause problems for Malcolm Turnbull. State governments and private companies had taken over transitioning away from fossil fuels. It was messy and confusing and caused all sorts of issues, including a politically dangerous one. Electricity bills were going up. Turnbull and his energy minister, Josh Frydenberg, developed a policy to deal with this. This is a national energy guarantee that will ensure that we have affordable power. This is a credible workable, pro-market policy that delivers lower electricity prices. It means no subsidies, no taxes, no trading systems. Subsidies, taxes and trading systems. All toxic policies now off the table entirely. Turnbull's party still wouldn't back it. He lost his job over climate and energy policy again. Turnbull, Rudd, Gillard, Rudd, Turnbull. Five jobs lost to the climate war. Why all this happened is the subject of more writing and pontificating than anything else in Australian politics probably ever. Everyone has a take on whose fault it was. But I think it's more interesting to look at why climate policy played out so horrifically here compared to other countries. Everyone's got a view. Here's former Labor Environment Minister Ros Kelly's. I think it's the fact that you haven't had huge majority governments and they've relied very much on marginal seats. And in a lot of those marginal seats, there are um, coal industries. And so rather than take a leadership on issues that matter to the whole of the country, it becomes marginal politics, just playing to the marginal voter. And it's a tragedy. Former Liberal Resources Minister Ian McFarlane's take is pretty similar. If you look at the Labor Party and you look at the coalition, there's not a lot of difference between between the parties. The reality is that in real-world politics, the name of the game is to differentiate yourself from your opponent, so you've got to be different. And secondly, then use that differential to appeal to the very small group of voters in the middle, and that's where the politics comes into it. You've got to look different to marginal voters to get elected. And this topic, climate change, was where the wedge was driven. And so we come to 2019. Scott Morrison was the Prime Minister. Ten years had passed since the Black Saturday bushfires. 
In terms of climate policy, we had the Clean Energy Finance Corporation, the Australian Renewable Energy Agency, and a 26% emissions reduction target by 2030, which Australia was expected to achieve with little effort. Or, as Scott Morrison puts it... In a canter. We're going to meet those in a canter. And we'll meet 2030 in the canter. By this time, there was an impression inside the major parties that any effort on climate policy meant instant political death. Scott Morrison won the 2019 election with a promise not to alter any policies on climate and to bring down power bills. You don't deal with cost of living by having reckless carbon targets or having higher taxes on families. Ironically, at that election, Tony Abbott lost his parliamentary seat of Warringah to an independent candidate running on a pro-climate action agenda. Let's call that job loss number six. And only months later climate change became impossible to ignore. Thousands of people have again sought refuge in makeshift evacuation centres in New South Wales and Victoria as deadly bushfires continue to burn out of control. There are people who will start 2020 without a home, without their home, without their property. And I said, I think we're going to lose the house as well. And... Sure enough, an hour later we found out that, yeah, that whole street was flattened. Thousands turned out to farewell a father and son killed while trying to save their home during the New Year's Day fires. We are seeing in the climate models that these events are occurring more frequently. What about the people who are dead now, Mr Prime Minister? What about the people who have nowhere to live? Freddie Otto and her colleagues at World Weather Attribution in London started work figuring out what contribution climate change had made to the fires. We found out how rare the event was in the world we live in today and combined it to simulations of of fire weather in, in the world that might have been. They compared how likely the fires were to happen in the real world with how likely they would have been if humans had not been burning fossil fuels for 150 years. And found that because of human-induced climate change, this event was made at least 30% more likely. I remember during the period of time people were saying, I hope this is not the new normal because we can't live with this. Well, it's actually going to get worse than that. We've experienced a certain amount of warming now and we're forecast to experience even more warming. Reality has caught up with us. And I mean all of us. The way we talk about climate has changed completely. I think the conversation that is basically reported in the media on extreme weather events and climate change has improved dramatically since we started doing this. And I have absolutely noticed that weather forecasters or TV meteorologists have changed the way they talk about climate change or that they talk about climate change at all. Do you see a change in the, in the global debate about climate change and do you think that the days of you know, widespread climate denial in big media outlets is coming to an end, at least partially thanks to your work? I think the days of large-scale climate denialism are over, yes. Australian climate policy may have stayed the same, but climate science had changed. It was better at explaining what was going on and why. State and territory policy had changed. International agreements in the global economy had changed. Emissions reduction targets in developing countries had changed. The financial, engineering, insurance and electricity industries had all changed... 
But more than all of that, the climate had changed. It was clear to everyone and could no longer be ignored. Now commentators have declared the end of the climate wars. While there is still significant debate about the way forward, almost everyone agrees now that things will and must change. The question now is how we best turn that to Australia's advantage. Australia, if you're listening, is written by me, Matt Bevan. It's produced by Sam Dunn and Will Ockenden with research by Lexi Metherall. Our series producer is Jess O'Callaghan. Next, digging things out of the ground and burning them is one of the things Australia does best. It is massively cheaper than other forms of generation. Our economic development is dependent upon it. And as climate change loomed larger as a risk to that industry, we started working on ways we could keep on doing it without the emissions. We were very focused on clean coal technology. If you want zero emissions, nuclear power does it. Well, the power industry can switch to uh, natural gas as a fuel. Australia and other fossil fuel producing countries have tipped years of work and billions of dollars into trying to use old technology to solve this problem. The story of how that's gone is next on Australia for Listening.